Friends, hopefully this is a big part of our motivation of why we may come here on any given Sunday because we recognize we need to be with God. Like, Monday through Saturday, awesome days. But if that's all life was ever was, it would be wildly, vastly, massively incomplete because we need to be with God And if you have come this morning with at least a little part of your heart saying, I hope I meet with God today. I hope God finds me where I'm at. Uh, That is exactly what today's message and what the scriptures we're going to hear is all about. A place to meet with God. Room to meet with God. There is a phrase that you'll hear over and over in the next 25 minutes, and it is, Sacred space. Sacred space. That means anywhere that you are keenly aware of the presence and power of God. Like, that is sacred space. Like, the older I get, the more uh, this desire for sacred space, for a place, for room, to be in the presence of God, like, that is climbing the ladder on my felt needs chart. Know what I'm saying? Like, I would rather have sacred space with God, time with God, than more cash. Hands down. I would rather have sacred space than being able to fit in my college jeans. Know what I'm saying? Like, it's just way better than the things that present themselves like, I really would like a little bit of this. And if there's a little piece of you that has that yearning, Lord willing, it's God's intention for you like to have that desire get even stronger today. In the book of Psalms, uh, that desire is framed with this question. Where can I go to meet with God? It's a great question. Where can I go to meet with God? And in response to that question... Sometimes in our small thinking, we, like, I wonder about things like, is God pleased with a building like this, or does he prefer, you know, larger churches made of stone? Or maybe smaller, more humble, rustic settings? Like, does God have any preferences along those lines? Does God prefer buildings that are finely tuned for choral music? Or buildings that are tuned for rock and roll and amplification? Does God have preferences along those lines? Does God have a favorite architecture? Like, is it modern? Is it gothic? Is it rustic? I mean, the Bible says absolutely nothing about any of these things. Like, they're not that helpful of questions for us in the end. However, when it comes to answering the question, where can I meet with God? The Bible indeed sets the tone for how we are to approach God in worship. And Lord willing, you will leave this room today with some answers to this question. Where can I meet with God? Uh, Last week we spent some significant time with the deep biblical theme of sacrifice, tracing it through the Old Testament pages to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, to the sacrifices that we're all called to make of praise and of our cries of help. Today, we're going to do a similar thing. We are going to trace the theme of sacred space, mostly through the Old Testament, but through all the pages of Scripture. So, 
It's kind of fast and furious, a little uh, tour through the Bible, if you will, so hold on to your hats. Uh, in the book of Exodus, after God has set his people free after centuries of slavery, after he brought them through the Red Sea, he began leading them through the wilderness toward the promised land. And while they were still in the desert, God gave his people, through Moses, some extremely detailed and particular directions for the building of the first sacred space in the Bible, the tabernacle. Did you learn this word in Sunday school? If you're here for the first time, my apologies. Like, we're, like, we're going fast through the Bible. So God speaks, and he desires that his people design and build this large tent for worship. This was not Moses' idea. This was not Aaron's idea. This was God's idea and God's initiative. In Exodus chapter 25, God says this, Make a sacred space for me, and I will dwell among the people. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then God describes in incredible detail. It takes 15 chapters of the Bible, Exodus 25 through 40, to deal with the directions and the construction of the tabernacle. And this tent, that is what it is. It's an extremely large tent. This tent would strike us, modern, savvy, educated people, as extraordinary, simple, and humble. I mean, the tabernacle described in the Bible would fit, I don't know, a dozen times or more inside our building right here. Like, it's not that big, but it's awesome. The tabernacle was portable, pitchable, movable, it was unattached to any particular geography or place. God's first idea of sacred space is not a glorious building, but a tent. So if you're scratching your head, like, what? God wanted to live in a tent? Yep, God had a tent. And the most important thing we can say about this tent that is this, that because it was portable, it was able to be in the center of wherever God's people were. And that is where God deserves to be. That is where God chooses to be. That's where God would choose to be, right in the center of his people. When the 12 tribes would encamp, the tabernacle was always right in the middle. There were 12, 12 tribes, four sides to the tabernacle, so three tribes would camp out on each of the sides. Three times four is 12. Following my math. You know what I'm saying? Right in the middle of the tabernacle, if you were a young Israelite child and you were born during these wandering years, you would wake up every day and you would find your bearings by looking to the highest place, which would be the roof of God's tent right in the center of your people. God is very concerned that his people, then and now, keep their vision and hearts focused on who and what matters most. That God, the Holy One, the one who rescued them, the one who set them free, who paid a dear price for them, is right in the middle. And there are kind of circles of holiness the closer and closer you got to God's tent. I mean, outside the camp, it was like the world. Unholy space or regular space. 
And then there was the camp where God's people were supposed to live holy, consecrated lives. And then there was the courtyard around the tent. Everybody could go in there, and there was a huge altar. You can see it in this artist's rendition where daily offerings of thanks and help would be made to God. And then inside the tent itself, there was a holy place where only the priests could go. And then behind a curtain, there was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of God The mercy seat, the symbol of God's mercy and loving kindness, his chesed and love, the symbol of that. And only one day a year could one priest go behind that final curtain and commune with the holy and awesome presence and power of God. As you got closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, the color scheme would change. We don't know what God's favorite music is. We do know what God's favorite colors were, or at least what they were in the Old Testament. Again and again, God says, when you get closer and closer to the holy place, find blue and purple and scarlet yarn and weave them with gold. As I was thinking about these colors this week, like, why does God like these colors? Is there anything special about these colors? Why don't we have blue, purple, and scarlet all over our churches today? I think it's this. When you would look up in the night sky in the middle of a desert with no electricity or civilization, you would see those colors in the Milky Way, in the cosmos. And God's intention is that when you get close to his presence and power, that you would have the sense that heaven and earth are meeting there and embracing and hugging and kissing one another as if God and humanity are In this one place, in harmony and togetherness, dancing and singing and being joyful for one another, I was out walking this morning as the sun came up, and lo and behold, there were some gray clouds in the sky, and as the yellow rays of light burst from beneath these clouds against the windows of the beautiful Oak Brook Tower in Elmhurst Hospital, there were blue and purple and scarlet and tinges of gold, as if for this moment at sunrise, heaven is kissing earth once again. And this is God's intention when we come into his presence, that things are finally as they are supposed to be. Have you ever had this experience when you had the sense that in your spirit, God was at the center and things, at least for a moment, were how they were supposed to be? I mean, both calm and joyful, centered and ecstatic. That's how you know God's around. I mean, I've had this experience, I mean, with, with worship, with music. Uh, With hearing God's word, um, I've been blessed with too many of these experiences. Like, if you have one in your life, it's enough. I mean, I've experienced this in music in awesome cathedrals. I've experienced this in run-down little chapel routinely on Sunday nights when I was in college. I experienced this time and time again in this church. I mean, places when, like, you sense the spirit of God and the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you're like, oh, God is real. And where all our craziness gets pushed aside and at least you realize God really is at the center and he is at the center of me. 
I've experienced this in lavish buildings, Orchestra Hall downtown. I've experienced this in just the crappiest Eastern European village at one in the morning with a bunch of high school kids. I mean, too many times to count, I have experienced this. But do you know this experience? When the presence and the power of God, like, dawn on you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Lord willing, someday soon, you will. The Israelites had this tent, this sacred space for God, for 400 years. And then after the time of Moses, and after the time of the judges, and after the time of Ruth and Boaz, when King David became king of an expanding Israelite kingdom, David looked around one day and he asked himself, how could it be that I am living in an exquisite palace built of these huge stones and the finest lumber that money can buy, and we're still worshiping God in a 400-year-old tent? Like, that doesn't seem right. God, can I build you the most awesome palace and temple on the face of the earth? And God says to his servant David, that's a fine idea. Not now, not you, not yet. I will do this in my own time. And God pushes pause on this idea because when David was king, the, the Israelite empire was expanding, there was war, there was violence, there was battle, and God did not want his place of worship, his sacred space, associated with the violence of those times. He waited until there was peace and calm. God gave almost as intricate of orders for the building of his temple to David's son Solomon as he did to Moses with the tabernacle. But once the Israelites built this awesome building in Jerusalem, in the capital city, one had to wonder, a temple isn't portable, it isn't movable, you can't take it up and down. Is God going to live in this city? Like, is this place it for God? Is he tied down to this one spot? Certainly not. And God's people never thought this to be the case. After building this first temple in Jerusalem, Solomon himself, the great king and builder, said this, Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much this temple, this little temple that I have built, like, that's where the right theology is. And yet, O oh God, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear from heaven, your real dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now, one of the pluses of having a building for God, an actual permanent structure associated with his worship, is that the people always know where to go. And there's a certain sense of uh, anticipation and community and centrality that get associated with this. There was an annual pilgrimage made by every Israelite to at least once a year go up to the temple 
and worship. One of my favorite verses these days, the beginning of Psalm 122 goes, I rejoiced when they said to me, let's go up to the house of God together. And Lord willing, when we come to church on Sunday morning, we have at least a little taste of that because we're in the habit of worshiping God right here. That's awesome. But there's also a danger in God having a permanent structure associated with him. A danger of shrinking God or reducing our experience of him to this particular place or space. I mean, it's interesting to me that God in his mercy, there have been three temples. They are no longer any of them on the face of the earth. Three temples dedicated to the living God. Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel's temple. And then the temple of Herod the Great, which was really a renovation of Zerubbabel's temple. But God in his mercy... Like, they no longer exist so that we, in our smallest of mind, can't say, there is this place that belongs to God in Jerusalem, and we all have to go there. There is perhaps a similar spiritual danger when we associate the presence and power of God for us with a particular space or place like this beautiful place that we can see and touch. I mean, for all of us, Lord willing, there are places on this planet that are special and dear to us because they are thick with our history with God. Hopefully our church building is one of them in your life. But there is nothing magical about this stage, this wood. There's nothing magical about Doug's guitars. Well, sometimes when he plays them really well. There's nothing magical about the organ or the choir loft or this... This carpet, I mean, the reason we ought to love this place is not because the stuff is awesome, but because God in his kindness routinely gives us a taste of his presence and his power here. But if this building were reduced to dust and ashes tomorrow, the presence and the power of God would be undiminished in their holiness and brightness and glory. We ought not to confuse the means with the maker or the gifts with the giver. It is God and God alone in the center. Here's what really matters. The Israelites lived 1,500 years with these two sacred spaces, the tabernacle and the temple. That is a long time. 1,500 years. I mean, deep habits, powerful tradition, strong preferences about how worship ought to go. And then Jesus arrives. And the book of John says that Jesus made his dwelling among the human race and pitched his tent, made his tabernacle among us. From the very beginning of his life, Jesus builds himself as God's living temple in the flesh. There is a theological word for this. It is the incarnation. That the presence and the power of God were made manifest in a human being. Flesh and blood. Does this sound crazy? It's about to get even crazier. When a sign of his identity was demanded, Jesus said, destroy this temple. I imagine he was standing in front of the temple of Herod the Great. And I will raise it up again, meaning the real temple himself. At his trial, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus said, 
was accused of saying, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days I will raise up another, build another not made by man. And when Jesus Christ breathed his last, crucified on the cross, the Gospel of Matthew tells us, as Jesus gave up his spirit, the temple in the Holy of Holies was torn asunder, ripped in two, and this little detail, from top to bottom. Why is that in the Bible? From top to bottom. Three stories up. What pair of human hands could get up there to rip the, te- rip the temple curtain? Nobody. When Jesus breathed his last, God himself shredded the curtain guarding the holy place and as if it's God was saying, now that my son's mission is complete, the holy of holies is now not just for one day for one priest. My presence and power are going out into all the world for all y'all. That's what Jesus did for us. He is the living temple. Everywhere. Everybody who walks by faith is now tinged and colored with blue and purple and scarlet and gold, the colors of God. We are all colored with the holy presence of the living God. We Christians don't have a building-oriented spirituality. Like, we have buildings, but they don't matter that much. We have a Jesus-oriented spirituality. But where is Jesus right now? I mean, where is Jesus' body? If his body is the temple... We should be oriented around that. The Apostles' Creed said, says, risen to the right hand of God the Father, ascended into heaven. So Jesus, how do we orient ourselves around that? Jesus' body is also somewhere else. His resurrected body is reconstituted and reconfigured. Just look around. Like, The Bible says we are the body of Christ. Tabernacle, temple, Jesus' flesh and blood, and now the sacred space of the church. And like the tabernacle once was, the church is movable and packable and portable and not attached to any particular geography. I mean, here we are in Elmhurst, but where is the body of Christ today at this moment in time? I mean, it's in house churches in China. It's in South American churches. It's in Pentecostal places in East Africa. It's still whispered in the cathedrals of Europe. I mean, the body of Christ is everywhere. It's like a good infection that is spreading throughout the planet and the cosmos. This sacred space, the center where God meets humanity, is quite literally everywhere, wherever two or three are gathered. And this is not even the most surprising part. Here's the final surprise. God's preferred sacred space where he will dwell is not only the gathered community, for sure is that, but it is also you, personally. Tabernacle, temple, Jesus' flesh and blood, the gathered church, 
and you, your body, your spirit, your flesh and blood, your soul, are God's preferred temple. Okay, I'm real. It's hard for us to think about ourselves this way. I mean, usually, like, what do you think about when you wake up in your morning and you, you see your body in the mirror or you, whatever, you just, I mean, my feet hurt in the morning. I mean, the kind of stuff we think about our body is like, oh, I'm getting old. Or, I wish my complexion was better. Or, I wish I wasn't so tall. Or, I wish I wasn't so short. I wish I could grow a beard. I mean, everybody wishes that. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we look at our bodies and the first thing we think is just nasty stuff about ourselves. Like that's how we idiotically define ourselves. And God looks at you, God looks at your assemblance of molecules and atoms and thinks, now that's a place where I want to live. Like, what if we woke up in the morning and that was our first thought rolling out of bed? Like, oh my goodness, God, you are going to live in the center of my life today and you are going to ask me to pitch my tent somewhere and your intention for me is to shine forth your presence and your power through this bag of bones. Holy cow. That is better than fitting in your college jeans. Oh, seriously, if we could only believe what God says about us for a minute. But indeed, that is what God says about us. To the Corinthian church, that was a hot mess of a church, God says this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple Not just all y'all, but you individually, God's temple, and that the Spirit dwells in your midst. I mean, how this works is a mystery, but it's what God wants, and it's what God will do. Now, if you want more sacred space with God, if you want more time in that room with God, you do not need to drive a thousand miles. You don't need to hop a train or a plane. All you need to do is look around and look right here. That's all you need to do. Because these are God's preferred dwelling places. Now there is one huge problem that I've kind of been tiptoeing around. Which is God in his mm, fiery love and holiness needs a holy place to dwell. God created the church and God created the space in the center of you for himself. And the big problem is that we in our foolishness and sin just cram all kinds of other stuff in that center place. And we are usually very happy to do so. And when that center place is filled, it is not God, like God looks at us from heaven and is like, oh, you filled the center place with other stuff, so I'm staying away. It's that this is the only place he can fit. Like God will not dwell on the fringes of the camp. 
He can only dwell in the center. And so there's the season called Lent in the church. Three days from now, it is Ash Wednesday. And this is an annual time for the church to look at the center and ask ourselves with a brutal honesty, is there anything besides the presence and the power of God living in the center of me these days? And of course there is. Of course there is for all of us. I mean, Lent is seven weeks a year, and we spend the other 45 weeks just, like, jamming stuff in here. Well, I want a new car. I need a promotion. Just, there's so much stuff there. And the whole point of getting together on Ash Wednesday, and Lord willing, of worshiping together on the seven weeks of Lent, is to have a spring cleaning so that God can more fully have the space and the place that he alone deserves Now, even the spring cleaning business, like, we can't even do that on our own. So Jesus comes in and says, you know what, people? Just, like, give me the keys to the closet where the brooms are kept, and I will do even this for you. Like, Jesus will do it all if we will just let him. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. Please, if you can, in these verses, hear Everything I've tried to say today, like, woven together. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that sacred space, the holy of holies, how do we get there? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have such a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. These two deep themes that we've talked about in Scripture the last week, sacrifice and sacred space, they totally come together. It is the sacrifice of Jesus the potency of the sinless blood of Jesus that allows us to experience God in his holiness, in his power, and his presence. It is the blood of Jesus that allows us to say to God, thank you, thank you, thank you, and I still need so much help. Amen. Let's pray together. God, It is incredible that you have come to dwell among us, that you sent, you commissioned your son Jesus to be enfleshed, that he became our sacred space. And it is uh, even more incredible that through his ministry and sacrifice that you make us your chosen dwelling place. God, in the weeks to come, keep our eyes fixed on the cross of Jesus. That's where we most clearly see your presence. And keep our eyes fixed on the tomb of Jesus. That rocky place that is now empty because of your resurrection power. Those things allow us to offer you, God, our true and undying sacrifice of praise. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
church. Uh, one of the ways we say, say thank you to God is through our tithes and offerings. I'm going to invite the deacons forward now to receive those. The men of Spirito are going to lead us on with a good song of praise. <laughs> 